following message is presented by Community Gospel Church in Bremen, Indiana. It is our great privilege to share this ministry with you. We in no way intend for this to be a replacement for the local church. It is our prayer that this would serve as a resource to help make Jesus Christ known in our congregation and other congregations gathering across the world. For more information about Community Gospel Church, visit www.communitygospelchurch.com. Good morning. It's a delight to be with you. Thank you, uh, worship team, for leading us to the throne. What a joy to sing praises to our great God. I invite you to turn to the letter of James. Um, I assume you've been going through this letter. Am I right about that? All right. Yeah, so we're in chapter 2. Jordan gave me a pretty hard-hitting text here. Um, But this is a hard-hitting book, actually. And it's something we need. Uh, It's certainly given in love from the Lord, obviously, but also from James because quite often, and and maybe others have pointed this out, I assume Jordan has, um, we see that phrase, beloved, or my beloved, or my brethren, so that James is really on the same plane as we are, um, a very humble man, but also a caring man who cares for the church that he dealt with directly, Um, and I believe that the one who inspired this text, the Lord loves us more than we understand. Do you realize that Jesus' love for you is without any limit? Some of you may be doubting that as you hear it. You say, yeah, but if he knew about this. Well, he does know about that. In fact, he knows about some things you're going to do six months, eight months, ten months, ten years from now, and he still loves you. So don't run from that love. Embrace it. Live as though you are loved because you are, and there's a lot of freedom and a lot of joy there. So I want to speak to the author of this text. Let's speak to him in prayer, and then we're going to dig right in, shall we? Lord, thank you for breathing out every word, every verse, every chapter, every book of the inspired word of God, the scriptures, the Bible, and how blessed we are that we can be here right now as like-minded brothers and sisters in full freedom, unharassed, and able to hear you speak to us from your word. So I pray that you would give each of us a teachable spirit, that you would help us to hear and heed your word, and then I pray, dear God, it would bear much fruit in our lives and that there would be overflow blessing for others, but above all else, that your name would be magnified here in this land. You are an awesome Savior. We acknowledge that publicly, and we ask that you would assist us now to worship you with our minds, with our hearts, and with our wills. All for your glory, we pray it. In the glorious name of Jesus, and Lord, all of your people said, Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Years ago, while standing in the front entrance of a church, inside the church, as people were coming in, I was talking to a few people I knew. I knew the people of this church, and I saw the pastor was there interacting with people. This was before the service. And so many people came up to him, and they were sharing prayer requests and just chit-chatting, etc., And then I noticed an older woman dressed very plainly coming up to the pastor. She looked concerned. Perhaps she had a prayer request. I don't know. But then I saw the pastor just rush right by her, almost knocking her down. And he went to this other gentleman who just came up the stairs who was dressed in a nice pinstripe suit and a tie, very sharply dressed gentleman. And I'll call him Mr. So-and-so. He said, hi, Mr. So-and-so, how are you? And he got right in his face and got real close. How's your wallet? I mean, how's your wife? And how are you doing? Well, I threw the wallet part in there to make a point because this man was the owner 
and the president of a bank. He was a very wealthy man. This looked to me, this was years ago, I was a young guy, but this looked to me like a clear case of favoritism. It kind of broke my heart as I saw that. And this dear lady, I'm not sure if you ever got back to her or not. Favoritism is an ugly thing. It really becomes a cancer. And it's bad for our spiritual health. And, and James is concerned to deal with it because it really is a problem in this particular church. But you know what? I don't think any of us are exempt from this. Have you, have I ever given preferential treatment to somebody at the expense of someone else? The reason I ask that question is because James is going to teach us very clearly in this text, and I think we all can plead guilty to this at some point in our lives. He's going to tell us that favoritism, and that's what we're talking about today, favoritism is incompatible with faith in our glorious Lord. Favoritism is incompatible with faith in our glorious Lord. You say, well, why is that the case? Great question. I'm glad you're asking. That means you're tracking with me early on. This is a good sign. So I want to uh, invite you to come with me through this text on a journey. We're going to walk through all the contours of the text, and we're going to consider some reasons why favoritism is indeed incompatible with faith in our glorious Lord. And here's the first reason. And it's, like I say, he's hitting hard here. Here it is. Favoritism is evil. Favoritism is evil. Now, let's look at the text and notice he brings up the concern right away in verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. James 2, verse 1. Now, James, the half-brother of Jesus is uh, writing to Jewish Christians who are scattered abroad, and uh, most evangelicals, at least, would date this letter about 45 to 48 A.D. Uh, many would argue it's the earliest letter in the New Testament. There are even a few, some anyway, who would date it earlier to about 35, 36 A.D., so that's very early. Notice right off the bat in verse 1, he says, my brethren. You see it there? Drop down to verse 5. Do you see my beloved brethren? James was modeling what he was advocating, which is love for others. And he really did love these dear people. He loved them enough to tell them things that were hard to take, but things they needed to hear. We don't want yes people around us all the time who are going to overlook some things that we need to know, right? We need those who care enough about us to let us know when there's a problem. So, um, well, I can give you example after example, but let me just say this. I hope there's someone in your life who loves you enough to tell you in a loving way, could it be that, would you consider this possibility, something perhaps that needs to be corrected in our lives? We need people like that. We, we all have our flat spots, every one of us, right? We're all made of clay. And so James here is calling them to account not to be mean, not to give them a bad day, but because he loves them and he wants to tell them something they need to hear to promote spiritual growth in their midst. Now, uh, in chapter 1, verse 1, I'm assuming you've covered that already. Notice how it opens. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I find that fascinating. Instead of saying, James, the half-brother here of the creator of the universe, Jesus, my half-brother, 
James, the eminent apostle in Jerusalem, the big shot in the early church, I am here to talk to you. No, no, that's not it. Uh, he says that he is a bondservant. Now, you've heard of the phrase sibling rivalry. Sometimes when you have one or two or three or four boys in your family, they tend to go at it, right, as boys will do. Uh, here's James looking up to his older brother and saying, he's my master and I'm his slave. Now, that's humility, isn't it? And we are also slaves of Christ. Those of us who have received him as Savior, who confess him as Lord, we are his slaves, aren't we? And so James is really on the same level as we are. That's how he sees himself. And really, this whole section here is about how we see and how we interact with others. And so we're all on equal footing. That's the point. So he says, here's, here's the command now, do not, verse 1, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that could be translated, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the glory. Uh, and James really is referring to an Old Testament concept. You may have heard the phrase, the Shekinah glory of the Lord. That's what he's referring to here. This is the localized presence of God in Christ. Now, in the New Testament, in John 1.14, by the way, you're going to be getting a lot of verses here. Some you may want to write down. And go like this and stretch your fingers out, because... Back in my day, back when things were more in print form, did you ever hear of the Yellow Pages? All right. Well, in those days, they had a, a slogan, which was, let your fingers do the walking, right? And so you're going to be doing that in the text today. We're going to be turning quite a bit, so just get nimble here and get ready. Here we go. So notice, uh, he says, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And again, he's talking about the Shekinah, the localized presence of God. In John 1.14, for your notes, John 1.14, it says, And the Word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, he tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent among us. Then John adds parenthetically, And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus is the incarnate glory of God. And James wants to make that loud and clear here so that uh, they can get their eyes off of the, quote, glory of man and onto the glory of Jesus. In Hebrews 2, 3, it says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. And so we need to be careful not to attribute too much glory to man. We see this a lot with Hollywood stars, etc., sports figures. Uh, they become larger than life, and many of them don't even want that. Maybe some do, but many don't. And it's not really squaring with what is reality. You see, if the Lord Jesus Christ is our glory, then uh, the merely external glory of man, of woman, will be seen in its proper perspective. In other words, when we are fully overwhelmed with Jesus' glory, we'll not be so starstruck with man's temporary, fleeting, and artificial glory. This is how it should be, right? When we think how glorious our Lord is. And so he says, don't hold your faith in our glorious Lord, notice verse 1, with an attitude of personal favoritism. All right, favoritism is the subject. So what on earth is favoritism? Well, here's a definition for you. It comes from a man named Hebert. And don't write this down because you will get writer's cramp. He says it's a biased judgment 
based on external circumstances, such as race, wealth, social rank, or popularity, and there's other categories as well, while disregarding the individual's intrinsic merit. And so James is commanding, discontinue your attitude of personal favoritism. You see, many in the congregation were guilty of such, but thankfully, praise the Lord, some were not. And I say thankfully because what we're learning here is favoritism is incompatible with faith in our glorious Lord. Why is that the case? Well, that's what we're exploring now. We're considering some reasons, and we've seen one already. We've said that favoritism is evil. Now, James is going to offer an illustration to show us just how evil it is, because there's going to be at least one person here on the receiving end of, of this. Look at verse 2. He says, For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, You sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges, notice the word, with evil motives? So he says, if a man comes into your assembly, literally the word there in the Greek is synagogue. So was this a non-Christian Jewish synagogue, you know, Orthodox Jewish synagogue, let's say, or was it a Christian assembly? It's Jews in either case, right? I would argue this is a Christian assembly. This is so early on in church history that the word synagogue and also the word church are used interchangeably. In fact, we've seen synagogue here, right? If you go over to chapter 5, always keep your place, but chapter 5, look at verse 14, and there you'll see the other word. He says, or he's asking, is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the what? Of the synagogue? No, of the church, right? So you have church and synagogue in the same letter. They're used interchangeably. This is really early on now. Most, if not all, are Jewish believers at this point, early on. And so this man comes into the synagogue, this Christian Jewish synagogue, and it says he comes in with a gold ring and dressed in fine or bright, could be a translation there, clothes. And the word in the Greek for the ring there is literally gold-fingered. So this man has a lot of rings on. He's dressed really sharp, the ringed fingers, and they often indicate wealth and uh, a powerful social status. This is one of the big shots in the uh, area there. And it says, there also comes in a man in dirty clothes. The poor man probably wore work-stained clothes, as many Christians in these days early on were, were poor, and many of them labored in the fields for nominal pay. So we have here then a contrast between the bright clothes of this rich man and the dirty clothes of this poor man. Uh, Christian assemblies, by the way, were open to the public in those days. Both men were likely, we can't prove it, but both men were likely unbelievers. Let me give you an example of uh, showing you that this is a public situation. If you go to 1 Corinthians 14, uh, the Apostle Paul kind of singles out the fact that unbelievers do come into the congregation. 1 Corinthians uh, 14, verse 23. 1 Corinthians 14, 23. If therefore the whole church should assemble together, 
and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men, or there it is, unbelievers, enter, will they not say that you are mad? And he goes on to talk about prophecy. Now back in James then, we have two, I'm going to assume here, unbelievers, and I have good reason to think so, especially for the rich man. We'll talk about that in a moment. But they're coming into the church, and what we're seeing here is how the church responds to these two from two different social classes, right? Some distinctions are being made. And, and James's point is, look, love should be equal among all. This is not a case where one is better than the other or whatever. He says, and you pay, verse 3, you pay special attention to the one who is wearing fine clothes. Literally, it reads, and you look with preferential favor upon the one wearing fine clothes. Uh, the bright clothing here is repeated to emphasize the object of their gaze. And so uh, this man was dressed to impress, and he was impressing. And so they're zeroing in on him and giving him favor treatment here. He's getting their favor because of how he looks and what they think they might get from him or whatever. But this is sin in the eyes of God, and James is pointing that out. And you say, and you sit here in a good place. The you there is emphatic. And you, because it's you, you sit right here in this nice seat. Now, this could refer to one of the chief seats, which were elevated, comfortable, and usually right in the front, right where the scripture reader would be. These were like privileged box seats, you might say. And that's where they're ushering this man. He's going right there to the best seats. And so then, look at what they say to the poor gentleman that comes in. You stand over there. Now, presumably, everybody had a seat, right? Most, if not all, were sitting down. This guy is doing worse than them. He has to stand, probably in the back, away from everybody else. And um, he's being disrespected. He's being dishonored, according to James. So it says in verse 3, or sit down by my footstool, kind of like a footrest. In other words, you go stand in the back, or if you must, sit on the floor. So not only was this man, this usher, whoever he was, unwilling to give up his own seat, he wasn't even willing to let the poor man sit on his footstool. He had to either stand or sit on the floor. So the poor man was treated dishonorably. Now, use your imagination with me. What if the Lord of glory himself walked into this assembly incognito and dressed in dirty clothes? Would he be told, hey, you go stand in the back, or if you must, sit on the floor over here? You see, this is the evil part of it. It's undeserved. We are all created in the image of God. We'll talk more about that later. There's implications there. But the point is, God is displeased, to put it kindly, with this type of behavior. And so, favoritism is evil. That's one reason why it's incompatible with faith in our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ. He says in verse 4, here's the question, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges? Now, most of the assembly were in agreement with the man who honored the wealthy man and dishonored the poor man. And so they arrogate to themselves the role of judge, as if they can pierce this man's soul and see what he is, what he's worth, etc. But the problem is they're rendering their decision according to unchristian worldly Standards, And this is why favoritism is evil. He says right there, with evil motives. Uh, these self-appointed judges were not judicious. So their thoughts and their motives are described 
as evil. I like how one scholar puts it. He says, having the ethical quality of being vicious and injurious, this is the word evil, and destructive. Partiality is an evil that exhibits the character of the one who practices it. In fact, the same word is used uh, in Matthew 13, or 15, 19, if you want it for your notes, Matthew 15, 19, Jesus says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, that's the same word there in the Greek, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders, etc. So the point is, favoritism is evil, and so we need to renounce it, dear friends, and we need to ask God to renew our minds pertaining to how we view other people. And that's going to take the Spirit of God and the grace of God. We do have resources. This is not a hopeless situation here. I think just the reminder is healthy for myself, for all of us, really. And so we're saying that favoritism is incompatible with faith in our glorious Lord. We're asking, well, why is that the case? What are the reasons? We've seen favoritism is evil. Here's another reason, and that is favoritism is inconsistent. Favoritism is inconsistent. If you look at verse 5, notice how he words this, chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? It's a great question. Notice that James did not ask, did not God choose only the poor? You see, there are rich people and poor people who are saved, and there are rich people and poor people who are not saved. There's no special merit about being either rich or poor. James is speaking of the poor in general. And uh, one scholar says this, and I agree with him. If you check out church history, he says, church history demonstrates that comparatively more poor people than rich have responded to the gospel. So James here is referring to God's electing grace. And we see that God does have a heart for the poor. So for example, for your notes if you want it, Luke 4.18, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the filthy rich. Is that in your Bibles? To the poor, right? And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, just for your notes, I won't turn there, uh, chapter 1, 26 through 29, Paul says many of you were, you know, kind of the, off the radar in the world. You, you were not of much wealth or fame. He has a whole list there of things. They were not, you know, the big shots, so to speak. And then in Mark 10, in fact, I think we should turn there. Keep your place. Let's go to Mark 10 and look with me at Mark 10. We're going to look at verses uh, 21 through 23. Mark 10, these are the words of Jesus. 21 through 23. Uh, and there are, you know, there are many more verses. I'm just giving you a sampling here. Uh, this really is something um, that is a priority, I believe, in the heart of God and in the Word of God. Mark 10, we'll pick up at verse 21. And notice, he says, And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. So notice his intentions. Jesus loves this man and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But at these words his face fell. And he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Now we can turn back. 
Let me say again, there are saved people who are wealthy, there are saved people who are poor, and vice versa. But generally speaking, and this is what James is doing here, he's speaking in generality, the poor have an easier time acknowledging their need, and they have less temptation to lean upon their own resources and to depend upon God. In some cases, it's hand to mouth. They have to trust God every day for the next meal, right? And so their present wealth is saving faith and all of its accompanying blessings. Why does God say the poor are rich? Because they know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and they have eternal life, which has uh, no expiration date, right? But not only do they have present riches, these poor, as the world would call them, are also rich in that they have future wealth. Look at verse 5. And heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him. This is the coming messianic, or some would call it the millennial kingdom. Think of Abraham, Job, Joseph of Arimathea. What do they have in common? They were all wealthy. What else did they have in common? They all love God. So money doesn't exclude anybody, and there's no spiritual merit to being poor either. These are non-issues in a sense. It has all to do with the heart. So, as I say, those men love God, but there are many wealthy people who are building their kingdom right here and now and have no use for a future kingdom because they've got it all now, so they would say. No interest in the messianic kingdom. Some poor people are also poor in faith and don't love God. But generally speaking, the poor are often more likely to long for the messianic kingdom. And their future wealth is life in the messianic kingdom. Jesus is going to come back in the future, and he will literally reign on this earth, actually, physically, literally, visibly. That's coming. It's promised in the Bible. I believe it. And so James is reminding his readers that their dishonoring of the poor was inconsistent with God's honoring of the poor. God's honoring them, and they're dishonoring them. You see, favoritism is inconsistent. He adds to his argument in verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Wow. Uh, the only other occurrence in the New Testament of this word here, oppress, is in Acts 10.38. It reads like this, all who were oppressed by the devil. You see, this is some evil behavior from the rich uh, oppressing and manipulating the poor. The majority of these Jewish Christians, as I say, were likely low-income laborers, and the rich were the ones who were oppressing them for their own financial gain, taking advantage of them. He says, and the rich, aren't they the ones, it says in verse 6, that personally drag you into court? If you have the NIV, it says, is it not actually they, literally in the Greek, they themselves who drag you into the court? It's like James is shaking his head, like, I, I, I can't believe it. You dishonor the poor, but you honor your oppressors. Let me give you an example. If you turn over to chapter 5, these are the rich land barons. It says, and this is God really uh, letting them have it here, <clears throat> chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Now, look at verse 4. Behold, the pay of the laborers, these are the poor, 
who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. So then he talks about uh, the, the treating of the righteous here. If you look at verse 6, you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Now you can turn back to chapter 2. So I take it that these are poor believers who are working in the fields and they're not getting their rightful pay. And God has a problem with that. They're being treated unfairly. They're being dishonored and being manipulated. And so James is reminding the readers that their honoring of the wealthy was inconsistent with the wealthy's harassment of them. Favoritism is inconsistent. Now, if you check out verse 7, this is really interesting. Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Now, it doesn't say the fair name by which they have been called. So these oppressors are rich, unbelieving Jews who blasphemed the fair name. One translation says the honorable name of Jesus. So that gold-fingered man who they honored was likely a rich, unbelieving Jew. He would be in the category of the oppressors. And here they are giving him the best seat and discriminating against the other fellow, the poor guy. Notice the phrase there, verse 7, the fair name by which you have been called. The NEB translates it, the honored name by which God has claimed you. You see, they belong to Jesus and they bore his name. In fact, Philippians 2.9 says it's the name which is above every name. And these rich are actually mocking, blaspheming the name which they bore. This is not good. And so James is reminding his readers that their honoring of the wealthy was inconsistent with the wealthy's dishonoring of the honorable name they upheld. Favoritism is inconsistent. So when we think about this temptation to judge others, now this is just the financial one here, but there's all different categories, different ways to play favorites, if you will. I think we should intentionally lean, intentionally that is, lean on God's grace, intentionally rely upon his spirit to help us to turn from inconsistent love and then to intentionally reach out to others and to try to look beyond the categories which are only destructive and they get in the way, to love others equally. You see, friends, favoritism is incompatible with faith in our glorious Lord. Why? Well, we're looking at the reasons here. Favoritism is evil. Favoritism is inconsistent. Here's another one. Favoritism is transgression. Favoritism is transgression. If you look at uh, verse 8, he says, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. So James pauses here to acknowledge that some in the assembly were not guilty of favoritism. They were in the practice of loving all people. He says, You shall love the Lord your God or your neighbor as yourself. Uh, and again, for your notes, we won't go there, but write this down and you'll see it. In Mark chapter 12, 28 through 31, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6 and this Leviticus 19, 18, which James is quoting. By the way, uh, the half-brother of Jesus is pretty much quoting Jesus throughout this letter. You can see the influence here. But if you were to go there to Mark 12, and we won't, you'll see that basically Jesus is saying, love God and love people. And James is saying, for those of you who are doing that, good for you, 
you're doing well. Now notice the command, love God as yourself. We love ourselves pretty much, don't we? Generally, we don't love people as much as we love ourselves. We take good care of ourselves, don't we? But even our love for self, as big as that might be, even our love for self is finite. Jesus raises the standards. In the New Testament, if you want the verse, it's uh, in, uh, let's see here, where is it? It's in John. Oh, uh, yeah, there it is, John 15, 12. Jesus says, this is my commandment, notice the difference now, that you love one another, not as you love yourself, which is finite, but just as I have loved you. Now, how much love does Jesus have for us? Is there a limit? Infinite, right? So, Jesus, you mean I have to love people with an unlimited love? I can't even do that. The Bible says, with God, all things are possible. Don't worry about being perfect. None of us are. But the idea here is, what's the Christian life all about? Is it me doing a lot of stuff for God? Or is it God himself, the incarnate one, Jesus, living the Christian life through me? Why do you think we have the indwelling spirit? <clears throat> he leads us, he empowers us, and he lives the Christian life through us. We just need to be available and yield, right? And so looking at this, he says, now notice verse 9, he says, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law, and there's the words, as transgressors. Do you see that? Uh, favoritism intentionally crosses over the boundaries of God's supreme law of love, and it's at odds with his character. Transgress really means just to cross over the boundary, to cross over. And that's what's happening here. God says, love others, uh, love them equally. And when we don't, we're crossing over, we're transgressing. He says, if you do this, verse 9, you are convicted by the law as transgressors. You cross over the boundary. Can you see here that favoritism is transgression? James says in verse 10, notice, and this is a really important verse with regard to the law, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in just one point, he has become guilty of all. Now that word stumble, one scholar says, marks his failure to keep all parts of the law in that he trips over the boundary which clearly marks the way of obedience. It stamps him as a transgressor of the law. And it says he has become guilty of all. Almost seems unfair, doesn't it? If you can actually find somebody, and I challenge you to find somebody, who has fulfilled the entire law except one point. That's less than a needle in a haystack. But nevertheless, only one point. I only did one thing wrong. I obeyed all the other stuff. You see, this person is not being charged with transgressing the entire law. Rather, this selective transgressor has been brought under the condemning power, as Alfred calls it, of the entire law. You see, here's the bottom line. The law is an indivisible unity. God gives it to you as a package deal. You mess with one piece, the whole thing blows up. There's something underneath the surface here. To transgress its boundary this indivisible unity of the law, in one point, reveals, here it is, a disposition to sin. And a disposition to sin will generally, and I also want to say always, will eventually transgress more boundaries. Now, James is aware of this because if you look in 3.2, uh, you'll see it there. He says, we all, the word all in the Greek means all, everybody, we all stumble in many ways. We all do, right? 
So if I have a spirit of disobedience in one area, sure enough, it'll come out. And just like if you listen to heretics, you say, wow, they're really off on the doctrine of the deity of Christ, all right? Keep listening. You'll hear that they're also off on other doctrines. It always comes in clusters. Same thing with sin. I have yet to meet somebody who's only sinned in one area, unless maybe they're a day old, and even there I wonder, so I don't know. But look at verse 11. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become, there it is again, the same word, a transgressor of the law. So this transgression is personal, and it's intentional in this case, and since the same God gave all the laws, any violation would be a transgression of his will. Favoritism is transgression of God's law, God's word. So here's a little homework assignment for you and for me. I want to challenge you and myself, and I've read it, but I need to read it again, and that is Psalm 119. What a classic uh, scripture text on the word of God and the laws of God. So for example, Psalm 119, 112, David says, I have inclined my heart to perform thy statutes forever, even to the end. I'm determined, Lord, to fulfill all your law. Read Psalm 119. It's a big psalm. It'll take you a while. Read it in chunks, maybe. There's sections there. The Hebrew alphabet breaks it up. And then pray over it. Meditate on it. And watch what God does in your life with regard to your attitude toward his word. That's one way to avoid transgressing God's word. Favoritism is incompatible with faith in our glorious Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Well, we've seen the reasons here. Favoritism is evil. It's inconsistent. It's transgression. And further, favoritism is unmerciful. Favoritism is unmerciful. Notice what James says in verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law, notice the word there, the law of liberty. Our words and our actions should be influenced by the certainty of future judgment. When's the last time you thought about the Lord coming back and the fact that he's going to judge? He says, look at the wording there, as those who are to be judged, literally are about to be judged, meaning at any moment, and what he's referring to there, for your notes, we won't go there, but 2 Corinthians 5.10, it's called the judgment seat of Christ. This is a whole other sermon. I don't have time for it, but in a nutshell, in my understanding of the text, the next thing to happen on God's timetable is the rapture of the church. God takes the church out. And then immediately right after that, we, believers, will stand at the judgment seat of Christ, not for condemnation, but rather he will survey what we did in our lives, our, our deeds, our words, etc. And you'll see it there if you check out uh, 2 Corinthians. But then there's the, after the tribulation and the, the millennial kingdom, at the very end, there is what is called the great white throne judgment, and that pertains only to unbelievers. That's not for us. Ours is the, is the judgment seat of Christ, and then for unbelievers, it's the great white throne. He's referring here to the judgment seat of Christ, and we're going to be judged. The criteria is there, the law of liberty, the gospel. And so it refers to the word of God, that phrase, the law of liberty, found in the gospel, together with the various obligations of being a Christian, that's all part of it there. But here it is, verse 13. For judgment, look at the word, will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over 
judgment. So for us, Christians, this would mean loss of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. For the unbeliever, it means condemnation, which is far worse, at the great white throne judgment, eternal damnation for those who have not believed in Jesus. And so finally, and by the way, he has in mind here how that poor guy was treated that came into their congregation. You, did, you treated him mercilessly. You told him, go stand in the back or go sit on the floor. And yet the rich guy, you treat him like royalty. That's a problem. And there's a linkage between that and how you will be treated by God. That's the idea. Favoritism is unmerciful. Here's the last phrase. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Living a life of mercy is an evidence of having received God's mercy through the cross of Jesus Christ. This is a characteristic of somebody who's received God's mercy, who's been forgiven, who genuinely knows the Lord as their Savior, right? This is something that should be a part of our lives. I've got a lot of verses. I can't give them all to you. You can see me afterward if you'd like them. But here's the point. I think it would be great for all of us to take some time to pray sometime this week and to actually get a pad and paper and list the many multitude of ways, you're going to forget a lot of them, of how Jesus has extended his mercy to you and to me. And if you just keep writing and writing and writing, after a while, it's going to come to you that, you know what? I can't hoard all this mercy. I need to extend mercy to others. Then write down at least three, if not more, three acts of mercy you can do to somebody you know, somebody who needs mercy, right? Let's be mercy givers. Let's be quick to forgive and quick to love. You see, favoritism is incompatible with faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen the reasons there. Favoritism is evil. Favoritism is inconsistent. It's also transgression, and it's unmerciful. Last one for your notes, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. You can have a Bible study the rest of this week. I've got more I can give you. But there, we won't take time, but if you go there, you'll see, and you know this, right, that all people are created in God's image. We have all the capacity for relationship with him, with others. We're made to represent God on this earth. That's a big responsibility. It's also a privilege. Now, I want you to use your imagination with me. Imagine you are a famous actor, and you are going to, or actress, and you are going to the premiere, the grand showing of your latest movie, just came out, and as you walk into the lobby, you see a realistic, life-sized display of you. You're a famous actor, right? Have you ever gone to the theater and you see it's actually life-size of Mr. or Mrs., whoever it is, you know, the actor or actress? And so you're looking at this display and thinking that they did a pretty good job. I actually look better there than I do in real life. And then as you look at that display, to your dismay, you see someone spitting on that display. And then you see another person punching that display and another person stabbing that display and then these group of people knock it down and they're stomping on it. Well, how would you feel? And then all of a sudden a reporter puts a microphone in your face and asks, do you have any comments on what's taking place here? And you say, uh, yes, uh, I'm offended and I'm outraged. And the reporter says, why are you offended? That display is only a piece of cardboard. Those people are not hurting you. And you reply, well, yeah, it is just a piece of cardboard. It's a display. But you know what? That display is made in my image. And I'm offended because they're indirectly attacking me. 
I've got a problem with that. Well, people who are diverse, whether racially, ethnically, religiously, and on and on the categories go, uh, people who are poor, unpopular, the unskilled, the unattractive, the uneducated, the socially awkward, all of those people are made in the image of our glorious Lord. And to treat them poorly is an offense to him in whose image they have been created. Does that make sense? This is one of the implications. There's many more. I don't have time for all of them. But there's one implication of Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And so favoritism is incompatible with our faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And the point is what we really need is to see people the way God sees them. That would solve the problem, wouldn't it? And so this is a heavy message, right? But there's a lot of hope here. I'm encouraged by the fact that we do have access to God's transforming grace. We do have access to the third person of the Trinity who has unlimited power and who is in the business of changing minds and hearts. He lives in you. He wants to help. And so a challenge again for myself, for all of us, would be to pray every day something like this. In fact, let's speak to him right now in prayer. Lord, would you please humble me and help me to think less of myself. And Lord Jesus, prompt me to look at the heart and not the outward appearance. Lord, give me the grace to take the initiative and to befriend the friendless. Lord, I plead with you to deliver me from favoritism and to help me to see people the way you intended me to see them for your glory, for my own good, and for the blessing of others. We pray this in Jesus' name. And Lord, all of your people said, Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you for listening to the Community Gospel Church podcast. If you would like to support this ministry financially, simply log on to communitygospelchurch.com and click the Contribute tab.